Yes, people, welcome along to episode six of the Patriot Game. This week, we've got an incredible guest, a stalwart of the Celtic fan scene. She's pretty much done it all from uh, the Celtic Trust through to fans against criminalisation into a more current campaign called Call It Out. We'll touch on all points um, and everything in between. An academic, a Celtic fan and a rebel to boot. Jeanette Finlay, welcome along to the show. Thanks very much, Martin. Thanks for inviting me. Very welcome. First off, how are you? I won't even tell you how I am. <laughs> I've told you all before we started about all my bumps and scrapes, but we'll save the we'll save your listeners for that horror story. <laughs> you always have to be polite. The um, we'll go straight back into um, the time and the need for the Celtic Trust. What was the thinking behind that at the time? Well, the Celtic Trust was founded just over twenty years ago, um, and there was a big push on the supporters trust movement in England and I was doing some work on that for a professional point of view as an academic and so I had been to a conference uh, in England and London uh, about supporters trust and the idea behind supporters trust and the the um, government done in England the sports whatever it was called, I forget what it was called, DCMS or something like that, um, had, um, were, were given some support to supporters' trusts to set up. And it was really an acknowledgement of the fact that fans of a, it wasn't just football, but fans of sporting clubs are more than just customers. You know, they have an interest in a, you know, they're, they're stakeholders in, in a way that's much more meaningful than, than other businesses that you might frequent. And so they were, you know, giving some help and support. And a few of us who were at that meeting were, in fact, Celtic supporters. And we thought, actually, do you know what? We should have this. We should have uh, a trust. And so we began the process of setting up uh, the Celtic Trust. So the Celtic Trust, um, so it was the first supporters trust in Scotland. And it was um, founded right at the beginning. And I basically just phoned up people that I thought would be interested. And those would have been people for the labour movement, the trade union movement, the cooperative movement, you know, who were all football fans. So it was that kind of, that was the thinking behind it. That, that our view was that Celtic uh, should be owned and controlled by the fans and that that's what we were about. So it did take us um, oh, best part of I think nearly two years uh, to get all of the constitution right. It's a very weighty document. It was uh, Cobbett's in Manchester where I found my solicitors who had done all this stuff for the English Trust and they, they, they worked for us. We weren't getting any fund. There was no funding in Scotland for this sort of thing. So Celtic Trust was entirely fan, you know, uh, led and, 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 and supported initiative. So we set it up and it was very clear for the start what we were doing. It was clear to us. It wasn't, it wasn't that easy to get that message out. Still isn't to some extent. That what the Celtic Trust does is not another fan organisation. So it's no, it, wasn't, it wasn't competing with the Celtic Supporters Association or um, the affiliation or any of the other organisations that are about, um, you know, bringing fans to games. It wasn't competing with that. It wasn't, I mean, obviously the Green Brigade and the boys and things didn't exist at that time, but it wasn't about, you know, um, atmosphere in games. It wasn't about any of those things. It was about the corporate governance and ownership and control of our club. That's what it was about. So, um, so it was always, it was never about who was in positions at that time, and it still isn't. 
mm -hmm. uh, which is a really important point. It's about the legal and financial structure. So we are we are an industrial and provident society. We're registered uh, and overseen by the Financial Conduct Authority. So we're a formal legal and financial body. And the reason for that is because our aim and our dream was to try and amass and accumulate shares because, you know, because it was already a, um, a PLC by that time, had been for a number of years. Um, so that Celtic fans would initially start to have a greater say and then eventually a control and interest. And that still is my dream. And, and, and as I've said on many occasions, I may not love to see it, um, particularly if I don't stop pouring boiling water down my walking boots. But anyway, you know, I may not <laughs> love to see this happening, but that's that's what the trust does. So the trust doesn't me or any of the previous chairs or secretaries or David Lowe, who's the current chair or any, the trust is not that. The trust is this vehicle. And everybody who joins the trust has an equal say in what the trust does. And we own shares, so we've bought shares over the years. And those shares are owned in common by all of the members. And those shares can never be sold. Nobody can personally benefit or profit from anything that happens. And if for any reason the trust should 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 um, cease to exist, I see no reason why that should happen. But if it did, then everything that it owns, and that would be Celtic shares, has to has to be sold and the money used for Celtic charities. So that's what the trust as and we had i suppose coming for the kind of people who were involved in it at the time we weren't then and we're only just managing to deal with it now very good at pr i'm trying to work out whether we're better at pr than celtic football club but i, I don't Absolutely. know whether we're i'm not sure whether we're better or worse but we're certainly we'll at that at that kind yeah. of level really uh, so we wouldn't it was really difficult to get your message out and and celtic fans being by nature critical and i don't mean I don't mean critical in the, the common sense meaning of that term, like they want to criticise you. I mean, they think, they analyse, they think, what's happening here? Have we been sold apart? Who are the, you know, what's going on here? Is, is this something we, we should trust? And that's a good thing. But it does mean that they question and question and question. And of course, each generation, because we've been around <laughs> 20 years, you know, we have to go through the same thing again to try and explain what the trust is. And, and that's obviously inevitable. And we're, we're, I hope we're, we've kind of reached a point where you know, I think I think that will keep going, and we'll, we'll we'll be able to kind of keep that message in the public domain, so that people we don't have to keep, you know, every now and again pushing it and pushing it. But anyway, that so that's what the trust is about. The trust is about the fans owning Celtic. Of course, that was always a long-term project. Of course, in between times, what we've done is we've been engaged in lots of campaigns, which are we think are, are you know um, important for fans generally and our members in particular we've done lots of things in terms of representation for individuals and for you know for for, for the fan body in general on issues that we think are important talking about uh, pr and getting the message across what, what do you say to people who think this is some sort of vanity project which is clearly just nonsense but people seem to think the likes yourself are going to just form a coup and take over the club tomorrow like people don't seem to get this as a very long-term project 
yeah, no, it'd be, it would have been great if it had been a short-term project and we could yeah. have, we could achieved it and then I could have retired by now. You know, <laughs> but, uh, um, no, that would have been great. A vanity project. I don't know if you think the amount of work that people like myself, you know, Kenny Butler, Jim Cosgrove, people who've been around right for the start, the amount of time we've put into this over 21 years, I think if we were a bit promoting our own self-interest, we could have probably used that effort to do something a bit, a bit more positive. We would have achieved better results. So if it's a vanity project, we're not very good at it. That, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't know that. I don't know what any of us have gained personally as a result of it. In fact, it's cost us in all sorts of ways. So, so you would have to have somebody saying to me, "Give me the evidence of that," because it's just not true. See, in terms of um, obviously now with the prominence of social media, Jeanette, is have you just got a like a sort of project in place to sort of highlight what you are about and, and sort of get more sort of connections with the fans? The yes. fans who, who solely focus on the football and not the actual working, working processes of the club? Yeah, yeah. No, look, for years we've run this on a shoestring, you know, and uh, mainly in terms of never the only reason we needed money was to buy shares that's the only thing we really needed money for and, and, and some very minimal running costs but for years we've run it in terms of resources in terms of people doing things we've run this on a shoestring like every other volunteer organization you know you, you, you just have to get bodies in and people's lives change and things happen and they float in and out and they do whatever you know so but we had a point so in, in last year uh, at our AGM, 2020 AGM, we decided to, do, that was our 20th anniversary, we decided to relaunch um, because, well, because we felt we needed to, we felt that we we had to go back to our founding principles in terms of explaining to people why it's important that fans have a greater stake, like ownership stake in the club. And, you know, because we did believe, and we'll maybe talk about this a bit later, because I think, I think it's very current, that it was possible that some very malevolent forces could be around. Malevolent in the sense that they have no love for Celtic and it is about seeing it as being potentially a valuable project for them if there's a change in the structure of either European or even British football, that there might be money to be made and these would be people who would come in and that could be very dangerous for us as a club. And we could see our club taking over and have the heart and soul ripped out of it, as we've seen with other clubs in England. So we really did believe back at the beginning of 2020 that that was a possible, that that fear, which we'd always had, because the PLC model is, is open to that risk, that that fear was probably more relevant and we really needed to relaunch and say to people, you need to come together. So that all uh, happened. Now, one of the reasons why the Celtic Trust, one of the first trusts in Scotland, has never risen to the size of other trusts associated with much smaller clubs is that we've never been in crisis in the 20 years that we've been mm -hmm. in place. We've had no crisis. Trusts grow when there's a crisis because people then look to say, how are we going to organise and how are we going to fix this? We've never had a crisis. We didn't want a crisis. We didn't want one. But but that's the reality. As long as things are going well, most people just want to go to the games. And I want to just go to the games and no bother about this. But, you know, sometimes you just think you have to. Um, so towards October, November, 
December last year. It was as close to a crisis as I think we've probably been. People were really angry. There was all sorts of things happening. And as a result of that, and as a result of some of the decisions, I think quite courageous leadership decisions that we took um, about organising, you know, a COVID compliant demonstration and doing things like that, people began to join. And so we get a big influx of members uh, run about that time, December, January, you know, right into now, a huge, massive increase in our membership. And when I say maths, massive, I'm talking about fellow base. So a big increase in our membership. That brings with it the money to buy shares. So we began to buy the shares. So people say, well, don't give these people your money. Like, well, here, we bought the shares. There's the shares. You own them along with me. It's the same, you know, you're not giving me money. You're not giving David Lowe money. This is money that you, this is, these are shares that you as a member of the trust own. That's what it is. If you don't want to do that, that's fine, but that's what it is. So there's a huge increase. So that then gave us the possibility of having more bodies involved. This is almost more important than any money we brought in, having more bodies involved that we could start to. So you wouldn't have me trying to run the Twitter account and run this and run that and do all sorts of different things, getting into arguments with people and stupidity like that. Um, and we've done that. So we now have a finance committee, a, 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 a comms committee and a, a a fundraising, a shareholder services subcommittee, and what's the other one? Uh, membership. So to, that's a very long answer to your question, which is that we now have a comm subcommittee and you might have seen a change in, in our communications. That's because I'm not anywhere near it anymore. It's been handy dirty, more able, some younger, some no younger, but a more able group of people who are able to really concentrate just on that. Uh, and they're doing a fantastic job of it. So yes, I think we have after 20 years now reached a point in terms of numbers of people who are activists being in a situation where we can we can grapple with this, you know, issue of getting it, who we are, what we are, what we're about. And that 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 so so the answer is yes, I think we have begun to do that, and that's because of the new membership. And the more members we have, the more activists we have. And the more we can, the more things we can do, and do them better. Definitely, myself. I'm I'm, I'm a member. I think I speak for the other two lads, Pearson, Lee. I think these are uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. got members of the trust thing. The um, I think the message. I think you were spot on what you says in relation to you kind of need a crisis, and you've seen that in England. You've seen a, you've seen basically the heart and soul being ripped out of these clubs. You've seen the the fan scene just being totally and utterly eroded, and they've went towards a sort of privatised model where they're completely and utterly shut out the support. Um, and if anything, the last couple of weeks have kind of highlighted this. And we had George Baker on the other day, the FFC United in Manchester. He was a founding member. He was also an ex-board member. And it really brought home, I think, the sort of pertinent need for certainly fans to engage and get active. Because if there was, for example, something like an English Super League, and this isn't me like um, ma making a sort of catastrophic situation here. It's just the reality of the situation. If Celtic go down a model where they try and... Um, exponentially expand the wealth of the club and chase a model that's different from what we currently have. The vulnerability of Celtic is astronomical for an aggressive outside takeover. Absolutely. So I think anyone listening to this has to sort of cop on, understand that the best people to run Celtic Football Club are the people that love the club the most. And that's no 
financial mercenaries or pariahs that are involved in extracting what they can get out of the club. It's the people that love the club, that support the club, the actual stakeholders, and the biggest stakeholders still in the club is the support. Um, one thing I would love to ask you is, in relation to the trust and the work that you've done, you've done it over 20 years, and you're right to say that <clears throat> there's not been a crisis of sorts. But I think now, I think people are sort of copping onto the idea of what the trusts do. Do you think there is a realistic ambition or indeed a plan to either have some degree of greater autonomy and democracy, as in like a board member from, say, the trust or something similar placed on the Celtic board, or a position where we could ever, as a football club, get to a German model of 50 plus one? Let me address the board member thing first, because in the very early days, as a sort of a tactic. Mm -hmm. uh, so our thing was own the club, but in the meantime, have more say, have more, you know, have the fans listen to, have a better set of communications, you know, all of that. Uh, we had this kind of, you know, thing where we every year we would ask the PLCA GM to basically investigate, review the possibility of doing something along those lines. So, and, and we became kind of known for that. And it was a bit of a poison, is that the right word, poison, Charles? I don't know if it's the right word, but um, because people would say, oh, fan on the board, I they just want Jeanette Finley on the board, or they just want X on the board, or they just, you know, so it was all like this thing, and your vanity project thing, it was just we wanted on the board, it was, it was that sort of stuff. The reality is, and, 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 and I think we knew this, but I think we have to be, and we, we dropped that a long, long time ago, is that if you're on a PLC board, you have legal obligations. Uh, you have a fiduciary duty to act in a certain way. You would be one voice on the board. You could be outvoted at any time. And then you would then be implicated in every decision that they made because you'd be part of the board that made it. So actually, a fan on the board is not a good idea in the particular circumstances that we're in just now. Now, there are other um, trusts in other clubs where there's fan representation on the board and that works better. But a club the size of Celtic and a PLC structure, it, it's not really an option. All that would happen is that that person, whoever that person would be, albeit elected by, and, and that's the other thing that the trust does, the trust would, could be the constituency that elects that. Um, and then having to be accountable and come back and say to people, right, okay, but what could they say because a lot of that they would legally be obliged not to say anything because they couldn't uh, reveal things anyway so we don't think that that's a good idea and we think we'd have we'd be in a much better position to put pressure on the board and to defend the club should there be um uh, any kind of you know vultures circling um as as still separate and external and the way you do that is by building up the shareholding now that's two things it's the ownership of shares and that's going to be a very long project because because that's a lot of money mm. we're talking the values now compared to what they would have been 20 years ago you massively increased so in order to be able to build up enough money to kind of have 51% of Celtic, that's a huge amount of money and that's not going to happen anytime soon. However, if you take the number of shares that are held by people like us, like me, people who bought them, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, and they're really quite small, and since, and they're really quite small amounts, if you combined all of those together and they voted as a block and they, they, that was coordinated in some way, that's well over 20%. 
If you've got well over 20% of the club, think what that means. So Dermot Desmond has, what's he got? About 38. Um, Lindsay Train has about 18. If we had 20%, we could stop either. So if either of those sold out, 20% would be would be enough to be a block on a majority in you know ownership because there are other you know 10% and 10% that are in the hands of people who will never sell you know in families. Even the bank in New York though they have like 12% of the club. Sorry? There's some some I, I read the list of those that in, are involved with the shares that some of them are up Yeah, I think well David Lowe's more of an expert in this stuff than I am. My understanding is, I think some of them are like Desmond shares or some of them are just held in different, I'm not really sure. Right. What I know is that if we had 20%, then you're a block on, you know. So anybody think they're coming in and think they'll have an easy go at it and whatever, and they know that the fans are organised and can, and can wield those 20% or 25% as, as a block would think twice about that. That could be enough to, to put somebody off and say, no, they'll be easier. Money to be made easier somewhere else if these people are going to always be in my face and stop, stop us for buying it right or doing whatever. So if you took that 20, 25%, whatever that is, plus the people like the Keens, uh, Chris Trainer, you're really getting up to near, you know, near half. You know, so that's that's the that's the sort of that's the thinking behind that. So it's achievable. It's a it's a perfectly achievable medium term goal to try and unite the, the shares that are out there. So that's why one of our big campaigns is to get all of those people who own shares, who bought them 20 years ago or whatever, and they just sit. They do nothing. They don't even get their mailings because they've not kept their contact details up to date. So what we want to do is we want to reunite. First of all, before you can before you can get people to vote with you, they have to have their vote. So they have to be able to access their shares. So we have to get people connected to their shares again, have them online, be able to operate them. All the shares that are lying that belong to people who have died. Um, and whose family have never done anything. They just the share certificates that's there on a frame in the wall or in a drawer or whatever it is, and or they don't know where it is, um, and get all of that all tidied up. Now, we did a huge job of work in cooperation with the club, because actually this is the PLC board's job. It's their duty to do this. But we worked with them to get a comprehensive set of FAQs that they host on their site. Although you'll never bother finding it, you have to actually come through us to get, you know, usually that's a quicker way to get to it. They've not got it very prominent and they should, which tells people what to do if they own shares or believe they own shares or believe their grand own shares or whatever to try and get this all, you know, get them reconnected with their shares. So that's the first stage. Thereafter, we want to be saying, you've got your shares now, please consider voting with us when the time comes or when things matter. Or, you know, if we'd had, if we'd had, you know, 20 to 25% people all voting with us when we were trying to put forward the living wage mm -hmm. campaign, that would have been a much easier job to do. Um, now, we did eventually, the Celtic still isn't an accredited living wage employer, but it pays the living wage. Um, 
and, and upgrades it. Um, and that was a fight that we never should have had. That was an utter, pure and utter yep. shameful embarrassment for us as fans to have our club. You know, when we went to the club with that particular proposal, we thought we'd come up with this great idea and we'd be kicking at an open door and we'd say, we'll be the first club in Scotland to do this. What a fantastic sort of testament to us. And this is who we are. This is it. This is what's, you know, that's in our DNA and the charity and all of that. And this isn't a charity. This is just paying people the right money. We just thought they would go for it. No. Mm -hmm. A pure and utter shameful episode in Celtic PLC's history. No Celtic FC. Celtic PLC's history. Uh, but if we'd had 20, 25% of the vote, we walked in and said, I think we should do this. I think we might have, they might have been listened to a bit better than we were. And then I just speaking of disasters, obviously the performances on the pitch this season have been... <laughs> Absolutely embarrassing. I was hoping you weren't going to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was meant to be the biggest, one of the biggest seasons anyway in the club's history. Um, but in, when you're just talking about the, the, the PR disasters and disasters and stuff, what's the working relationships like with the board? Like, there's a sense that the board and the fans are completely out of touch at the minute. Um, what is it like actually sitting down and, and bringing across these issues with yeah. them? Look, it varies. Um, you know, we have, in principle, an agreement that we have, um, you know, quarterly meetings. That's a trust. At one point, there was a, an arrangement where all the organisations within the game together to meet Celtics or the, or the main Celtic sports organisations. I think Lowell put a stop to that when he came in at first. Um, so he didn't want that for obvious reasons. We did now try and do it again. We now, you know, quite often what we're asking for is a meeting with, so us, the affiliation, the Irish Association, the association, um, the Green Brigade and the boys will quite often go in and the trust will go in. Uh, I say quite often, sorry. On big issues, we are asked to meet them and that's, what we, that's how we go in. Our meetings, they're polite. They're um, mostly they're um, business like. Uh, are they friendly? Uh, uh, probably no, in the sense that we're no for the you know the cup of tea and a biscuit's not going to work for us. And I say I, I don't say that in a disrespectful way to 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 anybody. Um. Um. But I think they're very clear that that we're very challenging to them. Mm. Now, we don't come out of meetings. We are accountable to our members. We're a membership organisation. So we do go back and say, right, we had a meeting. These are the outcomes of the meeting. We don't give blow-by-blow accounts because who would want to meet with people who sort of, you know, you can't, you can't actually have a proper conversation because you're worrying about every word you use because somebody's yeah. going to go out and go, oh, they said this and they said that. And I just tell them and they just tell, you know, and all that. You know, we, do, we don't do that because that's 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 not very business-like or professional. So we do, we do like to think that we're a serious organisation and we do try to conduct ourselves. And Celtic, no. And no matter what, we don't we don't betray confidences. Now, we're, we're also very clear when they say, you know, when they imply they're going to tell us something that we can't tell anybody else, we say, nope, don't tell us. 
Mm. Don't tell us things that you, you don't say to us, tell you this, but you can't tell him else because because we're not in that business, we're not interested. I don't, it doesn't even matter if I know or Mary McCusker knows or somebody else knows something and I can't tell the membership. We're not there for ourselves. We're mm. there for the membership. So we are not interested in being told things. Inevitably, there will be the odd wee thing that says, right, okay, this is going out next week, but we prefer, we'll let you know, we'll give you a heads up, but, you know, the people will know. I mean, you'll come and go with stuff like that. But we don't want confidences. We don't want to be told things because we're a democratic organisation. We're a membership organisation. And we have to go back and tell our members, this is the meeting we had. This is what we said to them. This is what has come out of the meeting. This is where we go next. So we don't, we don't want to be... Um, and we don't do the whole, oh, I've heard, or so she's close to the club, or... <laughs> we just we just don't we just don't do it because we do, we we literally will stop them if they try and tell us something. Now don't yeah. if, you, if you don't want us to tell them, don't tell us because we will tell people because that's what we do. We will tell our members. Mm-hmm. Of course, once you tell your members, you tell everybody because because that's the nature of the world now. That's the way it is. Uh, just in relation to what Martin was on about earlier about. Sorry. So just to summarise, our relationship is professional, serious, business-like. Sometimes. There'll be something going on and we will not be able to get a meeting for love nor money. And it'll never be, we're not meeting yet. It'll be, oh, this has happened or that's happened and things will get delayed. And so a meeting won't take place for quite a long time. And that's because, you know, there's going to be a fight. So they just um, kind of bin us for a wee while. So so that's basically what the, meeting, the, the, the relationship's like. Yeah, so just in relation to what Martin was talking about, how if we went to England, we could be in a position of a hostile takeover. I don't think people are probably aware right now we could be with Linsel Train and what's it, 18% they own of the club. Do you know if anyone's ever had any dialogue with them to know what their plan, well, I know what their probably end game plan is, but how long they intend to be involved? I'm not aware that MD's had any any conversation with them, but it's very clear what they are. I mean, you just need to go and look at their, their, their website. They're about maximising shareholder value. They've no interest in this club and what it's about. You know, they've, they're interested in it as a, as a financial proposition. They, they, they don't claim to be saying anything else. In some ways, I prefer that. Cause you, At least they're honest. You know what they are. <laughs> they're there to make money. And, and that's it. I mean, people had very, uh, you know, varying views about Fergus McCann. The one thing I thought about him was that he was very clear that he was there to make money and he made money and he left. And, he, you know, there's some stuff about the end, about the training ground, what happened with the last share issue and stuff like that. But, you know, and I, but I prefer people... Even if even if they're going to be on the other side, you're very clear they're on the other, and they don't pretend to be your pal and they don't pretend to love the jersey and you know all that sort of stuff. I prefer to just deal with people on that basis. In the same way as I as I don't think it's necessary for you to um, to work for Celtic Football Club for you to be a Celtic supporter. I don't think it's necessary as long as you do your job properly my issue with, with a lot of the things that goes on is that there are there are clearly ways that that club is run which is um which is a sort of a corner shop feeling rather than a rather than a big organization so so no um no we've never spoken to them i don't know if mdls has but i have no doubt what they're about you know so they would they would sell the more or buy more the more away and depending on what the money is 
bear in mind, I mean, you'll have noticed, I'm assuming, that I know, I know people who own Celtic shares, by and large, the vast and overwhelming majority of the 27,000 of us, bar maybe, I don't know, 10 people, uh, didn't buy shares to make money and don't yeah. know what their shares are worth and never look to see week, what they're worth. But they've shot up this week, shot up. Um, and that's usually capitalism saying, hello, something's happening. Yeah. <laughs> that's how capitalism speaks to you. You look at the share prices, you know. So for us, that's not something that we look at, but it does certainly tell you that there's things going on. So there are clearly lots of discussions around restructuring the business, and I'm doing quotes here with my fingers when I say that, uh, you know, the business of football globally. And, you know, there will be people looking to see who can make money because that's that's what capitalism does. <laughs> Moving on to uh, fans games criminalisation. <clears throat> I'm going to put a lot of meat on the bones of this question. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> going right back, uh, I, I can remember the, the first day um, it was ever introduced. I was over in Udine, uh, 2011, and I had been passed, and I was absolutely scunnered. And I think back to when Tom Devine interviewed uh, Christine Graham for the SNP, and if anyone listening hasn't watched that, I'd encourage you to go and watch the video that was uh, produced. I think it was a trust that put out. If I, am I right in saying that? Or was it no, it would, well, we probably put out the... It was, what it was was the evidence sessions, because she yeah. was convener of the Justice Committee at the time. Yeah. Tom Devine was given evidence at, mm -hmm. at, at the Scottish Parliament. That's what it was. Yeah. So so that's all available. Yeah, it was if there's Celtic fans that haven't watched, I would encourage anyone to watch it. The 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 fact that it was actually passed, the well, the years subsequent sort of proved the illiberal and moral nature of the the legislation and how hastily it was created. But her justification was that she needed to even up the scores, and that's a that's verbatim. She stated that um, more often than not, songs that were sung by a particular club in the south side of Glasgow would be in nature sectarian, and songs sung by Celtic fans would be in nature political. Um, and she felt that there was justified legislation to already tackle that. She wanted to create new legislation to change that. Um, the vast majority of the people that were that were impinged by it, though, were generally Celtic fans. But I think one thing that was incredible that came out of it was the fact that so many football fans came together, culminated, and showed a degree of solidarity. And I think that was sort of pertinent to the, the campaign where you see it wasn't necessarily just whole one and Celtic fans. It was, I was at the one at George Square, there was Motherwell fans there, there was a few Rangers guys, there was guys for Hibs and all that sort of stuff. And people came together to understand the severity of it and the, the way that they were subsequently going to be policed. And I think if they didn't realise then, I think most football fans now sort of know the, the damage that the, the, the legislation had. What did you think at the start of the campaign and where did you think it would take you to? Did, did you ever think that there would be a situation where it's now been repealed and subsequently football fans defeated the government on their own bill? Well, we did, because that's what we set out to do. And there's no point in setting out to have a campaign that you think is going to be defeated. We didn't think it would be easy. Um, now, the initial, remember that what happened was that they um, initially were going to introduce it in 2011. They were going to rush it through, you know, um, and that, there was a big outcry about that because it had to be properly scrutinised. And then further decided to have the scrutiny. And that conversation you're talking about, that um, uh, Justice Committee hearing, was uh, was part of that scrutiny. So that was a scrutiny of the bill before it became the act. So our aim at that point was to try and prevent it from becoming an act. And lots of football fans were involved in that. In fact, there was no support for this 
from anywhere. There was no support from any other political party. Was there, was there any independence in the parliament at the time? I don't know if Margot, Margot um, Donald was still alive, I think. Aye. So there was, there was only SNP MSPs supported this. Um, and a lot of them didn't support it, but they would never have done it. They would never have acted, but, you know, they would say, oh, we didn't support this, but they would never say that. So they were the only people who supported it. The lawyers didn't support it, either the Faculty of Advocates, the, Bar, you know, the, the, the Glasgow Bar Association, the legal academics didn't support it. They, they, they highlighted all the problems with it, that there was adequate legislation to cover most of the really problematic behaviours that were being sort of discussed. There was already legislation to cover it, that it was too vague, that it would, um, you know, that it was illiberal, that it was making something a crime in the context of of, of a football match, which wasn't a crime anywhere else, and that was inherently wrong, uh, all of that sort of stuff. Um, the football organisations didn't support it, the clubs didn't support it, the SFA, the SPFL didn't support it, um, the civil liberties associations, you know, um, liberty didn't support it. The only people who gave the government any comfort in this were the groups who I like to call the Scottish government funded organisations. So, um, so like um, uh, Stonewall Scotland, dreadful organisation, um, claiming claiming all sorts of nonsense about how gay people just couldn't go to the football because football fans were so terrible, you know, and that they needed this legislation in order to be, you know, all that sort of thing. Equality network and gender, these bought and paid for women's organisations who don't represent women at all. Well, they represent middle-class ladies who lunch, but they don't represent any women I know. Um, um, uh, what was the other? What was the other ones that made up the? There was, there was another women's organisation, or oh, the Scottish Women's Convention, who very helpfully for the government made up some evidence. Actually, made up some evidence, and we were able to uncover that. You know, they actually went into a, a committee hearing and said, "Oh yeah, we we've done that. We've got this research. And we've done this research. And we've asked this question, and and they asked. They were asked specifically. Oh, on this." But this, oh, I, 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 they did that. So I think that was in the, the repeal session rather than the, 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 the original scrutiny. So that was the scrutiny of the repeal. But anyway, over the course of the piece, the only people who ever supported this was, was the Scottish government, its, its party, and the people that they, that they bought and paid for by the Scottish government. Really, that's, that's that. So, so it was a big task. And our original thing was to try and stop it becoming an act. Of course, it did become an act because the Scottish government, uh, the SNP, had a majority at that time of seven, and they used their seven, and that was it, and so they, it went through. But there was supposed to be um, a kind of a review after a year, uh, and we then turned our minds to collecting evidence so that we came to the review, we would be able to argue against it and get it repealed at that point. In our naivety, we just thought, well, we need to get this, needs to go, it's wrong, and we need to fight against it. So um, we did that for a year, and then they basically just uh, pulled a stunt on us by no actually reviewing it. What they did was they got um, some academics at Stirling to do an evaluation 
and then said that was the review. So never took any evidence for anybody else. Those academics themselves, and I remember Stirling University had something on their, their website saying, this isn't a review. This was not a review. We were not reviewing it. This was an evaluation. It was not a review. So they basically done them over, sort of gave them a job to the saying, evaluate this, which is a perfectly legitimate thing for, you know, academics to do. And then said, oh, that was a review, by the way. And they went, no, no, it wasn't. And so they, we didn't get a review at that point. And then we just basically lobbied and lobbied and campaigned and lobbied and we were on the streets and we were email campaigns and and there was legal action you know there was sort of basically it took a number of forums so you know kind of on the street stuff and the stadium stuff you know different stunts that we did publicity you know videos you know collecting evidence supporting people who'd been you know caught up in it collecting all the data analyzing the data it, it took a number of forums the campaign against us was extremely wide-ranging and used all the skills that we know exist within footballing and you're absolutely right at the beginning this was brought together, FAC was brought together by the five, at that time, main Celtic supporters organisations. That's who set up FAC. But we always knew. We knew that what this was about was targeting Celtic fans for singing political songs because they knew they couldn't stop us singing under any other legislation, they couldn't stop us. And But we also knew that if you hand any police force in the world a power, they will use it and they'll use it far and wide so we knew that other football fans were very vulnerable so other football fans at the time were saying oh we don't need to worry about this you know this is not about us this is about you Lord. this is about the glasgow clubs this is blah 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 to their credit some of them came to understand that that wasn't the case so at various points we had links with st johnson st marin aberdeen um rangers for a time um motherwell um hamilton um, sorry if I've missed anybody, Patrick Tussle. Uh, so mainly, I think in the end, the key people who contributed were Celtic, Motherwell and Hamilton, really, to be fair. I think they did the most. But, but at various points, other clubs did things. Sometimes we didn't want to sit in a room and hold hands. But we did a bit of coordination in terms of saying if it were going to be stadium protests, we'd all do it on the same day and things like that. Um, and then that was that until we came to the election in uh, 2017. 2017, is that right? Losing, losing track of time, but 2017, uh, in which um, uh, the SNP lost the majority. And that was it. So that then allowed James Kelly, to his credit, to put forward the repeal bill. That was then scrutinised and we had all the same nonsense again with all these people turning up saying. So so people were then turning up after nearly, what was that? So it was 2012, this was 20, so five, six years of evidence saying things like, oh, we really need this bill to protect gay people. And you're thinking, how many people have been charged with a homophobic incident? Do you want to know how many? Under the Act, do I know how many? Over the over the over the twelve years, is over the sorry, over the six or seven years, one. And do you know what the note it was? It was singing a song about somebody, somebody takes up the arse, something like that. So homophobic. I'm not sure that's an entirely homosexual practice. I wouldn't really want to comment. I don't know about these things, but anyway, that's that's what that was. So there wasn't really any who was ever 
convicted or charged even with a, a homophobic related thing, but yet still Stonewall Scotland wanted to say, we need this, gay people need this, or they won't feel safe going to the football. Nonsense, utter, absolute, bought and paid for nonsense is what that was. Anyway, so that went through. They didn't have a majority, but right up to the last minute, we were panicking. Because, well, panicking is maybe too strong a word. We were conscious of the fact that it would only take a few people to bottle it. Wasn't he massively confident about the Greens, but fair play to them. They did They did remain, they kept the line to the very end, but I, I was more worried about them than the Tories, because the Tories, the Tories quite obviously wanted to give the government a kick. Now, that's not a problem. We were a, we were a campaign, a single issue campaign. You know, if, if the Earl of Hell had had a vote, we would have asked, we would have went and had a word with him as well. It was just really about saying, we want this, we want this uh, act repealed. So right up to the last minute, it was so fine. It could have, it, it, it could have, we could still be fighting it yet. Uh, but thank God on the day, that's what happened. And that is the first piece of legislation ever enacted by the Scottish Parliament that has been repealed. It was a huge, massive victory for working class people, for solidarity, for all of that. And see if anybody wants to ask you what Fat Boy's about. It's no about Super Leagues. It's no about British Leagues. It's no about Lindsay Train. It's no about any of the things. It's about the fact that we as football fans, despite our inherently tribal differences, because we're in play a competitive sport and we're opponents, we're able to come together and ensure that a piece of legislation which was an utter stain, a stain on, on the Scottish law book um, uh, was removed massively, massively. Bloody nose for the government of the day mm -hmm. and they deserved that. Yeah, I was already Sorry, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> See, just before Pierce comes in, by the way, the, I was standing in the section that day and to quote your man at Braveheart, fine speech. <laughs> we are absolutely victorious. We are not thick. We are not second class. Yes! Somebody gave me that the other day because um because uh it's actually it was actually ten years ago this year that fact was set up. It's hard mm. to believe that so ten years ago it was set up. It was set up in twenty eleven when the, when they first started talking all this nonsense about all oh, the kind of legislation. Um uh, and it took us to 2018, but I we were talking about that, and somebody says, "Oh, I've got the clip of that." So somebody sent me, so I have I, I have that, and I'm like, "Giving it loudly." And at, th at that time, I was actually, I was no, I didn't, I never had a megaphone at my home. I mean, I carried a megaphone and banners in, my, in the boot of my car all the time, just in case I needed to protest somewhere. Because I was on, we were, <laughs> my, my union was in strike at the time, and and I, I'm the pre still I'm the president of the branch and uh and i was just you know there was one of my members in the in the section that day and she said she says i looked down and there you were with a megaphone in your own again she says do you never have a megaphone at your own <laughs> <laughs> at that point it was just a regular feature <laughs> no it was already laughable and some of the stuff people were getting done for was disgraceful but i think people forget how this all started over a, a game of football when the assistant manager of Rangers actually had a go with the Celtic manager. Of course, though, that ended up with a committee to even this up. But yes, I mean, this will tie in with 
called it out. They didn't see fit to start a committee when a priest was attacked on the yeah. street. It's just disgraceful. No. I mean, there was more people booked on the park that day, the so-called shame game, than were arrested in the stadium. And the stadium arrests were, as far as I'm aware, mainly smoking-related. So why that would then say, oh, we need a legislation. We need legislation. You think, no, no, you don't. But it was never about that. It was, what was it about? It was about, first of all, it's a massive distraction for policy failure in government. So, you know, you're not doing too well. Education's not doing too well. Lots of things are that, you know, I'm looking back through what was happening at that time. Um, probably the same things that are not doing too well now. And, you know, uh, Jack McConnell had had a go at uh, Salmon and said, oh, you've dropped the baton on sectarian. And it, it, it's a distraction. It's like, oh, look, a squirrel, only in this case. Oh, look, it's the horrible working class football fans. Let's look at them and let's not look at us. Let's not look at what we're doing or not doing. Let's look at football fans. They're the cause of all these problems. And in amongst them, there's some very particular ones that we don't like. And then in, in amongst them, you know, so, so that's what that was all about. Um, you also had, it was a bit of a perfect storm because you had a Lord Advocate who was, you know, to his shame, you know, relatively sort of humble beginnings of our community who just was so pleased at, at getting the job that he wanted to lick Rooney's Lord and Masters rather than do his job. So Frank Mulholland was willing to, who's now a, a judge, That's that was his payment for his role in that. He's a high court judge, uh, an absolute disgrace. Um, and if he's listening... That's what I think about you, Frank. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, and he, uh, so he was there willing to do their bidding. Um, you had Stephen House, who was the chief constable of Strathclyde at the time when we still had regional police forces, very keen to be appointed the uh, chief constable of uh police the police service of scotland i know they call themselves police scotland but the actual title is the police service of scotland and i never call them anything else i always remind people the name is the police service of scotland uh, and uh, he wanted to be that and that was his payoff so he got that payoff he got to be um the chief constable chief constable of the police service of scotland the national police force that was set up then so there was lots of um you know interests at play there uh, and that's what we were that's what we were fighting against and in some ways when you look back you think how the fuck did we do that <laughs> but we did it but we did it so it was good 21st century Scotland and um, people talk about equality people talk about um, a revulsion towards racism and yet the highest uh, group that is still targeted is predominantly Catholics or people of an Irish diaspora, either first generation or second. Why do you think? Why do you think it is that um, things like orange walks are still accepted? And why do you think there was a need for something to put folks like call it out to uh, basically protest against such things passing Catholic churches? Yeah, let, let, let's unpack that a wee bit. So, in terms of the numbers. Um, we're certainly, uh, in terms of religious aggravated crime, we're, mm. the, we're the highest uh, mm. 
you know, very, very disproportionate. So Catholics are about 15 point, about 15.9, <laughs> we're 15.9% of the population at the last census, of course, there's a census coming up next year. Um, that increased when the new European accession states came in, that would have been after, uh, sorry, between the two censuses. So really about 11% is what the Catholics in Scotland were for a very, very long time. And that extra bit is probably, you know, um, people who've come over for, you know, Poland and, and, and different places like that. So that 11% is pretty much, and this is how academics kind of view it, because being able to see Irish as your ethnic identity didn't appear in the census until 2001 and people misunderstood it and thought that they could only say it if they had Irish citizenship. So people who were of Irish descent, who regarded themselves as Irish, but who did not have Irish citizenship, wouldn't take that. So that's an underestimate. Anyway, so what academics do is they choose, they take religion, because basically the Catholic population and the Irish population is pretty good. It's a good proxy. So of course there are Catholics who are not Irish and there are Irish people who are not Catholics, but by and large, it's a pretty good proxy. So we're about 11%. If you just want to talk about Catholics, we're 15.9% now. And we're about, um, I think, 42% with the most recent figures. We've been as much as 40, 55% of the victims in religious aggravated crime. If you're talking about uh, racially aggravated, then that's not we we're, it's people of colour who are more likely to be racially aggravated. But these numbers have to be taken with care because what happens is, instead of recognising the racism, the anti-Irish racism, which our multi-generational Irish community is subjected to, they, they kind of cover it up with this kind of chewing gum word sectarianism so they'll say oh it was religious aggravated so I don't know if somebody punches you in the mouth and calls you a Fenian bastard do they know like Catholics or do they know like Irish people or is it like a bit of both you know so they're and 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 we're not the only community for whom that's the case I mean mm -hmm. religion and race in relation to Islam or religion in, rela in relation to Jewish people, you know, so these these categories are not easy to separate and they're not easy to separate for us. Um, but what happens is it's very rare for the police to take forward a charge of a racially aggravated offence. They're more likely to go for a religious aggravated offence, but it actually is no clear which is the two. So that's that's I, did, I wanted to kind of see that first come a bit picky about right, data yeah. so um so that's where we are more importantly and there's other data which is all government data now in the public domain we know that and, I, and when i say Catholics, i'm going to say catholics irish catholics so i'm just going to say catholics or irish or irish catholics and that, that you take it to mean that's the same um more likely to live in uh, poorer areas, more likely to be, we're overrepresented in the prison population. We are overrepresented among sufferers of certain health problems. And more recently, the Scottish government had very clear data that our community was more heavily impacted by fatalities due to COVID, but they would not, they would not 
talk about that information. It was there, it's in the documents, but they only ever talked about people of colour being more um, badly affected by this. Now, it's no competition. We want all of these things to be in the public domain and discussed and addressed in all of the community, all of Scotland's communities to be properly looked after and have the rights and the, the, the government's duty towards them to be upheld. So we know it's no competition, we're no arguing, look at us, don't look at them. But we have to say that they will not acknowledge, they barely acknowledge us as a community. If forced behind closed doors, they kind of will, but hardly ever. Uh, and they will not acknowledge the fact that there were more deaths. So there was a period from when they did the first analysis of the data up to June, from March to June, it was quite clear that we were overrepresented among the dead. And actually, anecdotally, I'm very aware of the number of um, COVID deaths. So if you take St Mary's Parish in Accountant, uh, where Canon Tom, who's the priest that you were referring to, Pierce, who was who was assaulted, um, his parish covers St Mary's and St Alphonsus. There was a period uh, up to I think about Christmas where it, it's 70 funerals and 50 of them were COVID deaths. So that is something that nobody talks about and nobody knows. Now why is that. And that's not that they haven't been asked. It's not that we haven't engaged with the Scottish government. It's not that we haven't engaged with civil servants to say, why are you not recognising our community? Why are you not? And we need to understand why it's the case that more people are dying. Is it because we're in poorer communities? Is it because the demographics are different? Is it because we're, you know, an older community? What is that? But until you recognise it and acknowledge it, you can't then go and work out what needs to be done and what the appropriate messaging is for that community. But they just won't do it. And I, and I ask myself why that is, why the Scottish government, not just this Scottish government, um, this is no um, just about the SNP, but, but why Scottish governments going, going back seems so unwilling to recognise us as an ethnic, a minority ethnic community in Scotland, really unwilling. So we're either, we're told we're not really Irish at all, we're plastic paddies, or we're told to go home. Well, you can't do right for doing wrong here. You know, <laughs> you know that's what we're told. Um, so it's, it's certainly, I'd be interested to hear what you think yourself. But Well, I think, I think generally, I think one thing's for sure that everyone can agree on. There's an absolute overt toxic nature towards either the word Irish culture or indeed Catholicism in Scotland still. It's so prevalent, it seeps through the upper echelons of society and filters its way through the media and through every workplace. Um, I've told all my mates this story, but I grew up in a, a mining village and um, it, was just, it was just diabolical. Like when my grandfather died, they put him on the band list and all that in the local pub um, when he passed away and my dad went and made sure it was removed. But we, we used to have, like, I don't know if he's have them through in East End and all that, but we, like in most villages, they do like gala days and all that, you know, like once a year. Yeah, no. They go mad for them. But so everyone has this gala day and we um every single year the gala day was started by an orange parade. And I was always just flocked by this. I could never understand it. So growing up, getting older, starting to understand the intrinsic nature of what the orange order was, <clears throat> it's sort of almost links to white supremacy, clan like sort of style march through an area celebrating their hatred of people that live in the same community as them. So I was kind of baffled by the thought of this all-encompassing community day, bringing everyone together in the celebration of a gala. 
but you exclude the kids that go to St. Joseph's until 11 o'clock when they can start the march because the Orange Order had already been round beating a drum of triumphalism around the village telling you how much you were hated. It's just absolutely bananas. Yeah, and the yeah. fact is, it's still so prevalent in Scotland, it's accepted. Yeah. No, it's a, you know, see people who try and tell you it's a West of Scotland thing or it's a, it's a working class thing or it's a football thing. And they're just liars. Mm -hmm. They're liars. They're liars or they're blind. They don't see it because you scratch the surface of middle class society. Now, it comes out in different ways. So, so you're, 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 you're better off communities don't tend to sort of wear the crumpling suits and the badly fit and whatever and, and give it bat on drums. They don't do that. Um, but, you know, talk to them about Catholic schools. And it comes out in a variety of ways of what they don't. We are still regarded as something a bit other. We're not quite, we're not, we're not quite theirs. Now, as time goes on, clearly our young people regard themselves as Scottish. I don't regard myself as Scottish. I was born and brought up in Scotland, but I don't regard myself as Scottish. I am, for all purposes of the state, a subject of Her Majesty, God bless her. <laughs> you know, that's, that's just, that, I don't get any choice in that. That's just what it is. Um, so I am, um, you know, I have a, a UK passport. That's that's what I have, because all my people came during that period of the of the famine. So I'm a bit out of. If if somebody can lobby the free state government to try and sort of like include you know a few generations back, we'll be fine. But anyway, um, so our young people do think of themselves as Scottish, and, and why shouldn't they? The kind of they want people can people can understand themselves in whatever context they feel is appropriate for them. But it is still the case that their name or the school they went to or their, you know, their ethnicity, however, however displayed to somebody, will have an impact. So my son, I'll tell you this story, my son um, is an Irish citizen. But he was born and brought up here and has never lived anywhere else. Uh, but he's entitled to that. And uh, he started a job on a building site that some of his pals were working in. These young guys weren't the Catholics or anything, but that wasn't an issue. So he he started this job and for his site induction, he used his passport just for his ID. And so he did his week's line time and the following week his money doesn't come through. So he phones up what's happened, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's speaking to the guy. Anyway, guy says, oh, no, there's a problem. Disney, look as though you're, you need to show us that you're entitled to work here. And he went, what, what are you talking about? So he says, you're not entitled to work here because you've got a foreign passport. And he said, well, I've got an Irish passport and I'm entitled to work here. And... I've never lived anywhere else. And the guy went, all oh, right, right, so you're entitled to half your wages then. So there was all this going on. So he's phoning me and he's saying, what's he talking about? I said, he's talking about, well, right. just, just tell him you want your money. So there was about a turn and fro and he comes back to me and says, oh, all right, right, right. Um, right, your money will be in. So this was say maybe, I don't know, the Monday or the Tuesday because he hasn't been paid in the Fridays. This is going on on the Monday or the Tuesday. And they said to him, right, your money will be in. 
got a light in the office and day, blah, blah, blah. And he says, but you'll be finishing up at the end of the week. So I says to him, he phoned me, I said, just walk off the site, son. You're no safe on the site. You're only safe. Because he's a big guy. Now, I wanted to do something about that. Uh, this is a big company. And if they ever get anywhere near a public contract, I will do something about it. But my son didn't want to put the guys that had gotten the job into any difficulties. So he asked me not to do anything, which was a ha- which was a sore one for me. Surprised you didn't so, turn up I'm, with your megaphone, Jeanette. Well, well, <laughs> indeed, uh, uh, the problem for me was that it was his decision. I mean, he's yeah. a grown man. You know, it was his decision whether something could be done about that. Um, but that was a sore one for me because I spend a lot of time defending the rights of young people in my community and not to be able to defend my own son in those circumstances was was a really hard one. But I had to respect his wishes. Not to, and I didn't want the guys to get, get in any bother or lose their work or anything like that. I'm no interested in, you know, making life difficult for people. I want to make life better for people. But that was a sore That's what happened. So this is like 2021 in Scotland and somebody was messed about a young guy on a building site because he was Irish. So don't, aye, aye. anybody that tells you that this is just a, a thing of the past or we're overstating that. Now, is it as bad as it was in the past? Clearly no. And actually, funnily, Martin, for what you're saying, I understand you had a very particular, can I call it a rural experience? I don't know if I'm allowed to call it rural, but anyway, uh, you know, but a different well, experience for the, eh? Go full scale chuked it if you want. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, see the orange order. Yeah. I don't think they're our biggest problem. You know, they're a dying beast, really. I mean, they're they're really fine. In fact, the only thing that keeps them alive is the people who still like marching past chapels, which is why stopping them marching past chapels is 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 probably a good thing. I mean, they're no really look. They're by and large working class people, they're by and large people who have not got an arse in their trousers, they're by and large no people who are like lording it out us. They're a wee bit like the Boers, they're like, they're a dying breed, they're poorly served, badly led, you know, that's what they are, you know, so you, you'll get sort of solicitors for Edinburgh representing them on the telly and, you know, like uh, who who wouldn't give them who wouldn't give them light in a dark room if he had to you know but just um, so they they're not really our problem our problem is why are we still more likely to live in poor areas why are we still you know more likely overrepresented in the prison population that because that's not the orange order that's doing that. The people who who oversee that system and its maintenance are people with far more power in society than the ragtag and bobtail, you know, chubby chubbers in their horrible uniforms. Like, do you know what I mean? You know, they that's not them. They people, I used to stand there outside St. Alphonsus and watch them get up and I used to think, walk across the road and stand beside us, pal. Ask, go and ask the people who are keeping you poor why you're poor. Mm-hmm. Come and stand with us and we'll both ask them that. You know, don't, this is, this is not in your interest to be doing this. So we spent the first whole year of call it out. Really, that was all we did. Because, because having said all of that, having said all of that, that they're not our biggest problem and that really, you know, they're working class people who we should be reaching out to and all of that, still can't have them spitting on your priests and harassing people getting into chapel. You still can't have that. So you need to put a stop to that. And then let's talk about what we do next. 
and I, I really don't. My biggest bugbear, the thing I would really like to fix, is to is the state of education on these issues in our schools. And I don't just mean the Catholic schools, I mean all the schools. I'd What's love that? to stop. No by mouth. Don't get me started oh, on them. They're the worst. You know, sense oversecting all of those again, bought and paid for, you know, um mouthpieces for a particular point of view who are themselves racist, you know, who are themselves bigoted if you see some of the materials that they put in uh, to schools. An absolute disgrace that these people are allowed to go in and actually tell our children that somehow an Irish flag has nothing to do with us. Yes, it does have something to do with many of us. And as long as we say that it does, then we're entitled to say that, you know, that that will be the case. So that if I had if I had to spend less time standing outside um, Catholic churches uh, watching these poor souls walking past, I would rather spend that time targeting these, you know, um, this class of paid you know, anti-sectarian kind of gatekeepers. I'd, I'd like to take them on. <laughs> I totally agree. Like what's going on in Belfast now at, at the minute where you have um, members of the Orange Order and other um, sort of dinosaur organisations who are calling for um, violence on the streets because of the current political climate here in Ireland. Um, so you have these people sitting in their gated communities by their fire drinking 50-year-old whiskey who are asking the working-class kids to go out and throw petrol bombs at buses. Um, yeah, it's just the thing I, in yep. Belfast... It has, and in Ireland, it has it, ever been thus. <laughs> and that's the thing, you know, where you have bondsmen still walking past Catholic churches trying to trying to stoke up tension, trying to, you know, trying to get reactions. The thing about it is now is that a lot of people are aware that this is a class war, that we're the same people who are going through the same struggles and the more people are educated on these issues, the more, the, the quicker Dan, Dan organizations like that, bigger, bigger organizations like that completely just die off. These are all class issues, all class issues. Um, violence against women is a class issue. You know, this kind of poverty is a class issue. Uh, you know, the kind of illiberal, shitty legislation we have in Scotland is a class issue. This is all a class yeah, issue. It. And it was always going to be the case. I mean, you know, I'm saying that I can't get on to the things I want to deal with because because I'm, you know, because us as an organisation call, I mean, are trying to um, deal with a kind of a, you know, a hangover for the past in terms of these marches past Catholic churches. You, your society couldn't get anywhere near trying to deal with class issues because you were too busy dealing with, you know, Brits on your street and uh, and and all and, and loyalist death squads, you know, which was a bit of a bigger problem, you know. Um, so I, I totally get that, but it was always going to go that way, you know, and that it was always going to be the case that once you'd sort of got past past that, that you were going to have to deal with the class issues which were always underpinning it. I mean, we know. We know what Conley said. Uh, you know, you know. Once you've got everything painted green, don't you know? Don't don't put away the guns. I'm I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was like, don't put away the guns because, you know, it's it's the 
uh, it's your, your your landlords and your renters and your uh, your capitalist classes that are going to that are going to uh, run the country for you. So, and that has happened. I mean, if you look at politics and the and the twenty six counties, it's it's pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's shocking. But even going back to your like, Scotland and Belfast, the thing that really grinds my gears is the the liberal do gooders will go out to complain about anything, but you'll never hear them on about. Irish Catholics issues in Scotland at all. It's just like a hush hush. No, no, absolutely no. I mean, they really struggle with it. They really, uh, it's funny, isn't it? I, I just, you know, they want, they'll, they'll say things. I've had conversations with people that say, oh, you know, oh, we shouldn't have Catholic schools because it just separates children. And you think, okay, are we getting rid of private schools then? Will we get ready private schools? Will we get ready placing requests? Will we get, does everybody that you know go to the same school? Like, because, you know, by definition, they don't all go to the same school. They go to different schools depending on where they live. And where they live is divided on the basis of money. You know, like, so, so what is it? What, what division of children is acceptable to you then? You know, if that one you don't like. Um, and then it's, or, or it's some other nonsense about, oh, it, and they just can't really, and, and these are no bad people. They're not people who are like, these are just ideas that they've never challenged in themselves, that they've never really thought about. They just they just feel uncomfortable with Catholics because Catholics are a bit, a bit mysterious and they do things that we don't know. And, you know, and they have this connection to Ireland and what's that all about? And, you know, and of course, during the time when there was a war, then that that. In some ways, you could understand that. You could say, right, okay, we need to keep an eye on that community because they've got a bit of an interest there, and, and they might be up to something. And sometimes they were, you know. So, um, so, so you could sort, of, you could sort, you could sort of see that there was an actual reason to be a wee bit suspicious um, of 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 Irish people at that time. Um, but but it's more than that. It's like we're just different and we're funny and we're a bit foreign and we're really, really annoying because somebody has just refused to just be Scottish and wrap herself in tartan and you know all that just sort of on, stuff. Just going just going back to football, you just look at what James McLean's going through currently in England. Um and he's Perfect. very outspoken on on the, the abuse that he's targeted to on a daily basis. And it must be very frustrating. Um that he's just not getting the same recognition as other people are getting. Um, yeah, um, oh, absolutely. So- well, you look at you look at what happened here. Um, uh, oh God, I've forgotten the boy's name, Glenn. Glenn Kamara. Glenn Kamara. I couldn't remember. It was Cl- I was going to say Klamala there, but Kamara. Anyway, sorry, I'd forgot. I just forgot his surname. You know, I don't know what happened. I think that guy genuinely believed he'd been racially abused. He may have been racially abused, and that's outrageous. And we, we, you know, we would have to condemn that. I don't have to. We would condemn it. 100%. Very happily, no problem. But that. But does that boy ever think how many pals? Do they ever think a eh, what eh, eh, the other racism that goes on there and the other bigotry that goes on there does, does he not feel any need to say it's not his responsibility he's a young guy he's a football player he's whatever but he's speaking it quite clearly and and clearly expects support and should have support rightly ex- expects um you know right thinking people to support him in opposing that happening to him absolutely but but to say nothing 
about the other stuff and the club that he's in. Do you, do you think he doesn't know to say nothing about that? And there is a, there's a sort of, a, again, this comes for the kind of um, middle class academic liberals, but there's this kind of critical race theory, which I think is very founded in colonialism, which is all about, um, you know, that it's only a bit colour, that people's, the, the only divisions in society are actually on the basis of colour. Now, that's, that was the Brits that created that, you know, <laughs> don't know why they're hanging on that particular coattail, but colour is the only thing. And the reality is it's known, it's clearly very a very visible thing, and it's clearly something that, um, you know, has to be addressed and should be addressed. But, you know, when I hear privately educated black academics chuntering on about white privilege and I think of young working class boys in the East End of Glasgow in Catholic schools who will never see anywhere near the kind of wealth and resources that some people have I just think, hold on a wee minute hold on a wee minute you have to why do you want to have why do you want to chop it up like that? Why do you want to say, well, these people are discriminated against and these people need to be looked after, but these people, they're just white, so they're okay. You know, and that that approach to the world is wrong. It's wrong, I'm sorry, it's just wrong. Because the reality and the data will tell you that no all white people are the same. Now, I'm not making a big thing here. and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm almost... I'm almost sort of nervous that somebody's going, oh, she's a fucking racist, you know, like, oh, yeah. she's, a, she's no bothered about black people. That's not what I'm saying. You have to listen to what I'm saying. And I'm happy to engage with anybody about what I'm saying. I'm not going to engage with people about what I'm not saying. So, you know, so critical race theory, is about, as I understand that, is about saying the only issue is whiteness and colour. That's the only issue. And I'm sorry, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. The objective reality is... Two miles up the road there. In fact, it's no two miles. It's a ten-minute walk. It's like half a mile up the road there. And the local Catholic secondary, the only secondary, the only Catholic secondary left in the East End. The young people there, many of whom are of colour, but the young white people there, working-class people, they are not privileged. They don't. In what sense do they have white privilege? No. I'm sorry, I just don't agree with that. And I don't think I need to. I don't think that I need to say that in order to also give full, absolute support to our brothers and sisters and the black community, the Asian community, any community, and give them full support and stand in solidarity with them against racism. I do that, I have done that, I will do that, but I don't have to deny the reality of class mm. on young white working class people. I just don't have to do that. And there's an intersection okay. of all these things. Or to deny the reality of life for women, young women. You know, young lesbian women who are being told that they're bigots if they don't want to go with somebody with a penis who claims to be a woman. Controversial? That's where I am with. I'm sorry, I don't have to do that. And I'm no. I think many wokes will be listening to this conversation anyway. Well. <laughs> it's just the reality. The, the situation with SNP, they're eating themselves alive at the moment with this uh, with this situation. I don't think they really know their arse for their elbow about what they're talking about currently. It's, 
Oh God, oh, Rarsi's and Elbow's been brought in it as well. <laughs> <laughs> the tie-in with what Lee was saying, though, I think that's that's basically the crux of it. I think the, the, the points fundamentally, it'll always come back to class issues, it'll always come back to divide and conquer because they have to keep people suppressed and they also, have to keep, they also have to keep communities against communities because it keeps the narrative which benefits the state. It always comes back to casino capitalism. But when you look at what's going on with James McLean, what Lee was talking about, and if you look more broadly even at Selig, just look in the last 10 years, we've had a manager that has been attacked verbally by sectarian and racist abuse in almost every single stadium. We've had a manager that was attacked on the touchline. We've had players that have had bullets and bombs sent to them. We've had supporters that are literally, physically and verbally attacked weekly. The situations at Tynecastle years back when we got painted, pelted with tatties and all that sort of stuff. No one talks about it. The situation with Kamara was deplorable. There's no normal set like fun that I know that I speak to would say, oh, that, that it's par for the course, you know, blah, 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 that any right-minded, normal-thinking person would outline it straight away and say that was absolutely deplorable. And yet you would never get the same sentimentality to tackle the prejudice or racism that exists if the individual is indeed Irish. James McLean has been lambasted. His children have been threatened. His wife has been threatened. He gets weekly and daily attacks. He has been subjected to a torture campaign at the time in England. No one will call it out purely because of the fact that guy was born in the occupied counties in Derry. That is an absolute travesty. I mean, even before that, uh, I mean, if you look at a sort of to a lesser extent, but it's but I think it's I think it sort of speaks to to how the multi-generationalized community are viewed. If you look at Aidan McGeady when he chose mm-hmm. to play for the Republic, I mean yeah. Yeah, people <laughs> quite happily sitting in a television studio chuntering on about how it was an absolute disgrace and he should have been playing for Scotland. I mean, they were literally saying to that boy, you have no right to associate yourself with a land that your people came from and that you still regard as as your ethnic background. That would never be said. You've got SNP MPs using the phrase plastic paddy. You've got, you know... Crazy. Sorry? It's absolutely crazy. I, I thought you said, who is it? It was a woman, actually. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> but uh, McTom- McTominay can play for Scotland and nothing is said about it, but McGeady ex- played for Ireland. It's deplorable. Exactly. And, it was like, and nobody, uh, nobody actually, that sort of dissonance, like, nobody actually asks themselves, how's that? Well, is that not the same? And, yeah. and you just need to sort of put the same words and uh, you, you just need to kind of, like, reverse them. Take out Irish, say black. And, and play these things back yeah. in, or or take it Italian and put Irish, or take it, you know, play these things back in your head, and you think, why is that no patently bloody obvious? It's the exact well, same as what happened with Aaron, Declan Race and Jack Grealish. If they want to go and play for England, fantastic, switch your allegiances. But if Ian McGeady wants to represent Ireland when he comes from Scotland, it's it's a travesty. When Ireland oh. played Scotland at Celtic Park, Gordon McQueen was encouraging people to boo him, like on the television, actively encouraging <laughs> to boo somebody. I was at the you wouldn't game. get away with that if, if they were black, Jewish, anyone yeah. who would be dealt with tomorrow. Yeah. Rightfully so. But that is just I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that because I don't watch international football. <laughs> yeah, we're the same. If you, at, if, you at, if you look at the lad Shea Adams for a more sort of recent topical one, I know McDonnell, but if you want to talk directly against say what's perceived as race, what you were touching on, which is so which is so good. If you look at Shea Adams that now plays for Scotland, no one has said that that boy should be lambasted, booed, should be jeered, should be exiled for a team. 
should be told that you've got no right to play for that Scotland team. He wasn't born in Scotland. McGeady gets approached by Paddy Bona, come and play for Ireland. He took the opportunity because he was shunned from Scotland, which a lot of people forget. But he was a talented young lad. Grandfather was for, from Ireland. He wanted to go and represent a country that he has a closer cultural tie to. And yet he was absolutely not really shunned for it. I think any person with half a brain in their head would realise that that always and consistently derives from Irish racism. There's no other explanation for it. If you can't see it, you're looking away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Definitely. The, um, anyway, we'll wrap up there. Thanks so much for your time. Um, it was a pleasure talking to God, you. God, have we been well talking for two hours? Went <laughs> 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 full scale Joe Rogan there. The, uh, yeah. I, think, I, think I, never, I think I never was off here. Um, but no, your, your time is much appreciated. The campaigns that you've been involved in are tremendous and uh, more power to you. And hopefully anyone listening to this, I would encourage you to get involved Read up if you're a wee bit sceptical about the trust. Read up, understand what they do, understand why there's a direct need for us to get organised as a fan base. Um, and let's have a wee bit more uh, say and um, and just solidify our position a wee bit more just in case there was a... I would even say, even if there wasn't a possible hostile takeover, I would much rather there was a situation like the trust out there so it's a vehicle for good so we can actually... Yeah. Put the, put the club where it belongs. Well, we've got our AGM on Tuesday, which, if you're a member, obviously that's great. And you can join. Yeah. You can join right up to the day before and still come to the AGM. Uh, and uh, although you'll need to email, and so that we can make sure you get your mail and everything in the link, obviously because of the way things are just now and everything being done online. But the other things, things that they don't that we haven't covered. Although I can't imagine there could be anything in the history of the world we haven't covered. But anyway. Um, but if they have questions about that, then please, please ask, because don't don't go about assuming or thinking, yeah. or, you know, just ask the question because, you know, we should answer it. Because if you're putting yourself up and saying this is an organisation we think you should join, you have to be able to answer people's questions. And, and we're very willing to do that. Excellent. The, um, I speak on all three of us. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Um, you welcome. We'll be involved with AGM and... Um, hopefully, hopefully we uh, build, agitate a wee bit more as a support and get uh, get to a situation one day, hopefully, where uh, Celtic Football Club's in the hands of Celtic fans. That, that would be great. And if I'm not here to see it, I hope you young pups are. And that would be that would be great. Anyway, I must go and um, I must go and make my mummy's tea. She'll be parched, so I'll just and go and do that. <laughs> thank you, Jenny. Enjoy see you later. Thanks, bye. Bye. bye.